I'm Cher Miller. I'm Rob Dietz. And I'm Jason Bradford. Welcome to Crazy Town, where potholes are filled with the e-waste from outdated crypto farms. This is producer Melody Travers. In this season of Crazy Town, Jason, Asher, and Rob are exploring the watershed moments in history that have led humanity into the cascading crises we face in the 21st century. Today's episode is about paving the world with highways and getting locked into a transportation system that has way too many side effects. The watershed moment took place in 1919. At the time, the estimated carbon dioxide concentration in the atmosphere was 303 parts per million, and the global human population was 1.88 billion. Hey, I know you guys are kind of old like me. You're not as old as me, but can you remember far enough back in time to when you got your driver's license and what that felt like <laughs> and what you did? In, in Atlanta? Yeah, of course. That that opened up the, the city for exploration. You, right. I was now able to actually do something other than watch uh, 80s movies and reruns. I, I'm yeah. living vicariously through my oldest, who's turning oh, really? 16, and he's... He's driving us around and he's about to get his license. I remember getting my license and feeling that that yeah. freedom. You know? I do. I remember there's a place called Skyline Boulevard in the Bay Area, which is like runs literally on the ridge yeah, in the Mahonda, Santa Cruz right? Mountains. Yeah. And I used to take my 1978 Volkswagen Rabbit and just like on those roads. And I would just go away for like a couple hours and nobody knew. Where right. I was, what I was doing. Yeah, yeah, I, we would do that too. Like uh, my friend said, "Hey, let's go to Alabama," and so we did. <laughs> and uh, it, of course, we ended up at a, an outlet shopping mall. <laughs> yeah, good. It was so worth it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So there's that there's that incredible sense of like freedom and adventure and power and all that. And any songs come to mind that represent those feelings? Oh, of course. I mean, what's a road trip without some tunes? Yeah. And since I was just thinking uh, 80s, one of my favorite road tripping songs back then was, of course, Life is a Highway oh, by the, the great Tom Cochran. And you would almost say that's a one-hit wonder, except that it got re-recorded for the Cars movie by Pixar and uh, became a, a, a mega hit Well, it was 2000s. his one hit. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah never yeah. heard of the guy, but yeah. yeah. Yeah, I still don't even know who the hell you're talking yeah. about. Yeah, <laughs> but great song. Great. What a riff. I'm a, Curtis, this one of Curtis is my son's favorites. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. He, he kind of is in the country music, so... Yeah. Curtis come in and sing it for us. Yeah. What about you? Is there any songs come to mind? Um, yeah, Highway to Hell. Oh, that's a good one. AC, DC, baby. Ah, <laughs> oh, ah, oh, what a riff. I don't, I, I'm going to take some heat for Why did that band ever become so popular? Why not? What are you talking about? <laughs> I mean, I don't what? know. The the screamy voice never did it for me. It what a... about the the short shorts guy? Yeah. Oh, the the guy who wore like the Catholic school uniform <laughs> exactly. while he while he jumps around on stage. <laughs> that didn't do it for you. Yeah. <laughs> well, for me, when I think about these songs, I think about Bruce Springsteen. He had a ton of songs that were about the the road and the freedom and getting out of town. Darkness on the edge of town and the river where they drive down to the river and and born to run and oh, all. Yeah, I mean, just. Thunder Road. I mean, well, if I mean, if you look at it, if you look at Americana music of all kinds, the road plays a prominent yeah. road in D- Dylan. Yeah, you know, blues. I mean, 
Think about it, right? Going down to the crossroads. You yeah, know? I know. Escape and and sometimes carelessness and the, the idea that you're young and, and free and you have these places you can get to. Second chances, you know, picking up from one place, going to another. Oh, it's utterly built into the culture. I mean, you can go to the movies, too, and think of, of road trip movies and, and... Drive-ins. Yeah. Those were good. I remember those. Ah, <laughs> uh, Yeah. Yeah, well, there's a little dark side to that, though, too, right? We've uh, we've locked ourselves a little bit into something there by, uh, uh, with our love affair with the road. I know. There's this splendor we have, this these feelings that we have, these teenage feelings we have. But yeah, I, I, well, I want to bring us then to our watershed moment for this show, which is how did we build this road system? Where did this come from? And not just any road system, but the key road system that we want to talk about is this interstate highway system, the big freeways. And those just didn't spring out of nowhere. There were people involved, there were ideas, there was inspiration. And let's go back to the summer of 1919. Oh, that was a a good year. I thought you were going to go back to 19, the summer of 1969. Oh, yeah. With with Brian Adams. (laughs) Going further back. When he got his first real six string and played it till his fingers bled. (laughs) Have you guys ever visited covered bridges? Well, of course. Yeah, it's kind of a thing in Oregon, these cool little uh, covered... There's one on the bike path on the Oregon yeah. State University campus. You ever drive an 18-wheeler through one of those? <laughs> well, no, can we? Through it? I don't know. I don't think about through. <laughs> okay. So, I, I didn't even know that was an option. Okay, well, the reason I... <laughs> it's a secret. The reason I bring that up is because in 1919... Dwight Eisenhower. He drove a semi through a car. <laughs> well, well, they had semis in Well, they had these big military vehicles. This is just after World War One, right? And and right. Dwight was upset because he didn't he didn't get to go fight in the war. Oh, poor guy. Poor guy. Well, he was too young, or what? I don't know. They, they didn't send his tank troop overseas. Maybe he had for some influenza. Reason. Okay. Yeah. But he's in Maryland after the war. I got outside of D.C. And this project was conceived of taking a military convoy from one end of the country to the other. And the military at that point was trying to figure out, in some ways, understand, can we move troops across this giant nation Hmm. and equipment? And, of course, this is early part of the age of of motor vehicles. And and so for the military, all these companies that you've heard of, you know, like General Motors and Ford and Dodge, they had built these big vehicles. So these are larger than normal things. Right. <laughs> and the idea is you can move equipment and trucks and you know tanks and, and supplies long distance for like military needs, all kinds of logistics. Yeah, like I assume most of the factories are in these East Coast towns or whatever. So you build these tanks or whatever and you're saying let's get them out to california so this was this was like an experiment or whatever like a test that they were trying to undertake yeah and and dwight was what he was in the military at the time yeah he was he was you know sort of a mid-level officer Uh um yeah on this i guess tank battalion or whatever it's called i don't know anyway he's excited he gets to do this so they leave on um on July 7th, good time of year, right? Not very rainy or anything like that. You know, good weather, long days. How, how many days do you think it takes them to get across the country? Okay, look at me. They're trying to go to San Francisco. Okay, so I've done that drive. You could do that in three days. Yeah. Right? So, Oh, you could do that in two if you're, yeah. if you're well, really I'm not, pushing I'm not, it. You could do a cannonball run. Fucking maniac <laughs> here. What are you talking about? I, well, I think, okay, but you've, you've given us some clue. This is a long, long I'm gonna time I'm going to say ago. it's yeah. two weeks. 
Okay. Okay. So I I have a uh, an experience. I've I've biked across the oh, country. Yeah. How long? It take um, you? And we did a longer route than okay. than I think what what they probably did because we were circuitous about sure. it. But we probably went about uh, sixty miles a day on average. And I think you know there were times where we do eighty miles a day, or if you had a good tailwind, you could do over a hundred. Wow, you're pretty pretty. Um, but the whole trip was was a hundred days, but that was with a lot of days off because right. we were looking around. So I would think you could do that in like, yeah, uh, 40 days. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's all. Re- it's pretty reasonable. 40 days in 1919. With a bike. So you oh, know, the convoy should have been probably quite a bit faster than well, that. Well, it took him 62 days. Uh, really? Yes. <laughs> and, wow. and the reason I brought up the covered bridge, because one of the problems, they they ran into all these places where they, they couldn't cross right? because it was a covered bridge. So they had to find ways to get around and it slowed everybody down. So, and they had to have a scout. They have to have like, these guys on motorcycle who would ride ahead and try to scout uh-huh. and then come back and say, okay, I think we can make it if we go right. And these were all like dirt roads, or, I'm assuming. It was all dirt from basically Illinois to Nevada. Uh-huh. Yeah. So uh, do you got any stats? Like, what was, how fast were they averaging? They were averaging six miles an hour while they were there. <laughs> yeah. So that's not very fast jogging speed, you know? It's a little faster than walking speed. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. It, it was incredible. Um, a, a quick pace of walking, you can get four miles per hour. You know? Yeah, it was a hazardous journey. I mean, they had you know, about almost 300 people and 21 people didn't finish the trip because they got hurt or whatever. Okay. So we've got like gone downhill, yeah. you know, in terms of like our, our endurance and stamina. Because we, we've talked before about Lewis and Clark, right? Yeah. Those guys, they didn't have any fucking trucks. Yeah. Every one of them made it. Yeah, That's we got incredible. the stats on that. They were they were averaging 22 miles per hour, Lewis and Clark. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, but this this was a very this made an impression on on young Eisenhower. Yeah. Uh, where, gosh, this is tough. This took us a long time. It was logistically difficult. It was dangerous. So you know, if Red Dawn is going down, <laughs> another eighties reference. Yeah. I'm We're, sorry, yeah. listeners. Sorry about that. So. The cool thing here, though, is you know you you've got the watershed moment as this cross country journey, but I think there's a second watershed yep. moment. In this is the, uh, usual in this in this series. Is yeah. we've got watershed moment take two. Yeah, so you know everybody knows Eisenhower as the commander of the Allied forces in World War II. So obviously, whatever he did after that trip, he he impressed the uh, the brass over in the Pentagon. Now over. you got to be careful. Don't. You're going to upset MacArthur if you don't explain that he was the supreme Allied commander in Europe, not ah, the Pacific. Okay. 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 Sorry. Yeah, there so, was a definite oh, ego yeah. thing going yeah, on. Yeah, they didn't like each other. I don't know where. Mike actually got got elected president. Yeah. 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 MacArthur did. Well, and maybe yeah. that's a third watershed getting elected president. But this this second watershed moment is he's over there in Europe, and he goes to Germany, of course. And what does he see there? He sees the Autobahn, mm, and he's like. Oh, this is way better than what I was thinking of. Even talk about a highway to hell. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. yeah. Well, and he he was drooling over this thing. Like this is what we need in America. Yeah, that's amazing to think that the autobahn was built prior to World War II, and it was apparently incredible. And I've been on the autobahn. So yeah, so yeah, and I. it it is it is pretty fast. Where, where have you not been, Jason? I mean, <laughs> I really, there's a lot of places I haven't. I've never been to Antarctica. It's um. <laughs> 
it's kind of crazy how fast people go on oh, the yeah. Autobahn. Oh, yeah. And if you stay in the left lane, you know, Americans have this habit of All kind right. of nonchalantly staying whatever the fucking lane they're in. Yeah. Sorry, I'm swearing so much today. Um, and <laughs> no, uh, if not. you try to pull that on the Autobahn, oof, I've got a, I've got get a good story on about your this. Ass with their lights on. I was in a Saab 900 Turbo and I was passing a like Yugo or something because this is right after. Eastern Europe got integrated and East Germans were driving on the Autobahn, but they had these little like tin cars. That, they're like five they guys. Go 36 in them. miles per hour. They're like, and they're on the Autobahn. And I come up in this, I come up a hundred miles per hour behind these cars going about 55, you know, yeah. like, like a Sammy Hagar, like nightmare. And I'm like, I'm like going on the left lane. And the next thing I know, some green Mercedes sedan is going 140 right up and on flashing your, on me. I'm yeah. like, what the hell? I'm going 100. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's nuts. Uh, ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. Well, so we got, we got Eisenhower being shaped up by uh, the lack of progress getting across the U.S., by the amazing ability to just roll smoothly all over the Audubon like Jason and a sob. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and then, like you said, Asher, he gets elected president. So uh, why don't you tell us what happens next? Well, uh, so he's elected uh, president in late 52. He takes command of the U.S., supreme U.S. commander in, um, in 1953. And this idea of having a better highway system, the U.S. had been around a while, been kicked around, but no one had really pulled things together. But Ike, Ike has got it, right? He's, 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 he's going to push this He's through. motivated. He's motivated. And so it leads to uh, the passage in 1956 of the Federal Aid Highway Act. And the plan got sold because it was going to connect all the cities in America. They were over 50,000 in population. So politicians everywhere now had a stake in this. Was that, a, uh, was that a big city back then? If you yeah. Have, like Corvallis is over 50,000. That's significant. We could know? have an interstate. We could have had an interstate. They would have had to divert five I, to go through. I don't think it's too late, man. <laughs> Why don't we go petition for it? Yeah. yeah. Do we have to exhume uh, Eisenhower's body to make that happen? Uh, I'm sure we can get lots well, of people who want to throw money at Eisenhower. We can deep fake it. You can deep fake it. Oh, yeah, yeah deep fake hikes. But the big, one of the big thing was that you know it was sold as a reasonable cost, twelve billion dollars. It was sold to be done in a reasonable time frame by 1972, and 30 year bonds were sold to pay for it, and it was backed by the federal gas tax. So they, mm. they didn't have to spend current dollars. They had to basically you know raise money through bonds, and the tax from gasoline sales would pay that back. And it would take like 20 years or something. Yeah, like it wasn't going to take too long. Well, and that that's a brilliant political strategy yeah, you know it's everybody, like everybody wants it just like uh like everybody wants a military base in their district <laughs> right exactly yeah so and everybody and the, wants a super fund site in their district <laughs> <laughs> and the federal government the deal was the state departments of transportation would still kind of run the shows but 90 percent of the costs of construction would be paid for by the federal government mm-hmm. and you had to have standards so what they did is they standardized things it had to be a four-lane freeway at least, and a freeway, you know, meaning that you've got separation of lanes and uh, no at-grade crossings. So this this leads to the size. Like, everything's got to be pretty darn big. Wide lanes, shoulders, 14-foot clearances when you're going under underpasses, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And so it, it takes a little longer. Instead of finishing in 1972, it finishes in 1992. Now, <laughs> just a little longer. I, I bet you most of those <laughs> folks that were planning this thought we'd be flying around in jets in cars by 92. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Why did right. they think that this was a good investment when we'd be flying <laughs> yeah, around? I know, totally. Wait, I just want to back up for a second. So the federal government was basically paying for all of this, right? Yeah. So, that must have incentivized kind of local states or local communities to be like, yeah, build, 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 right? Because yes. they didn't have to pay for it. Yes. Right? And it, it led to a lot of overbuilding, of course, too, because, well, the traffic really don't doesn't justify a four-lane freeway, right. but you're paying 90% of it. Let's go for it. I've seen this in action where I was living in rural rural California. They put in these giant freeways where you're like, why? Yeah. You know, um, if you build it, they will come. Yeah. Well, I I saw it in Atlanta with uh, these monstrosities. There was one called Spaghetti Junction. Yeah, that was just like, <laughs> uh, you know, it, it seemed like there were about thirty-seven highways crossing each other at this one spot, and yeah. uh, it, it was it was kind of became legendary. <laughs> There's some great aerial images of this kind of stuff, yeah. right, in various cities. But anyway, just give you, it, it, it ended up being the largest public works program in America in history. Ended up costing more than the twelve billion dollars. It ended up costing a hundred and twenty nine billion. And <laughs> so just a factor of time. Yeah, just, yeah. just a little overrun a little there. Inflation. Four hundred uh, forty six thousand eight hundred and seventy six miles for sort of the original build. Sixteen thousand exits and entrances, and about fifty five thousand bridges and overpasses. So this is a bigger project, more spending than like the dams and that were undertaking those public works programs. Just trying to think about right. the scale. That's the scale like- is big. They had to figure out. They did all these tests for like, how thick does the concrete need to be? How far apart does the rebar need to be? Just think about even some of the other, like how much paint did they use to make yeah. some lane markers or how those little reflectors that they put up? Oh, and the, road, and the roadside signs. They had to like, they, everything had to be standardized so that right. no matter where you were in the country, you understood what was it's going on. It's a good on. thing that we had a lot of prison labor to make all those, those signs on the cheap. That probably kept the cost down a little bit. Um, well, it wasn't just the the spending. It wasn't like a one-time allocation no, of spending, right? No, you, you don't do this going. once. You got to keep going. As everyone knows, there is always highway improvement projects yes. happening everywhere. Yes, right. It's, Life um, gets better. Everyone's favorite thing is, is is dealing with those projects that are happening. I think we're spending now something like well between the federal government. I know the federal government really spent the money for to build out the highways in the first place. But when you look at spending for roads. Now, highways and roads and stuff like that, it's it's federal, state, and local government. But we spend about, what, like $200 billion a year, I okay. think. Okay. You Chunk know, on maintenance, maybe building some some more stuff. But a lot of it's really main, maintenance expenses. Well, that, that's not, that's more than what the whole build-out cost was, yeah. right? So Per year. Like, we've now saddled ourselves with these horrible and, costs. These aren't inflation-adjusted numbers, though. I just want people to understand. So if you were to take that $129 billion It'd be more like half a trillion today. But if you think about inflation adjusted, I mean, we spend more than 100% more, you know, now than we did, you know, in the late 70s, for example. Yeah. So even when you adjust for inflation, yes. you're spending more money. It's a lot. You know, and and if you think about it in a context of like where we're spending money, you know, the big budgets that we have for like federal transportation spending, about 41% of it, like in 2021, 41% of like our federal budget for transportation went to, and infrastructure went to highways, right? Mm-hmm. And 32% was spent on air travel. Yeah. So 70 <laughs> something percent. So if you want to get a sense of like, you know, the, the context, 
rail and mass transit, 19%. Yeah. And the, and you know, one of the reasons why the cost of maintenance is so high is because compared to the 1950s, 60s, and, and 70s, when this thing was largely built out, the amount of trucking going on now is so much greater. And the and these heavy trucks really wear on this on the infrastructure. Well, and all those covered bridges they smash along the way too. <laughs> you got to keep re- rebuilding. rebuilding yeah, they those. keep rebuilding. That's, yeah. this is the part I understand. They yeah. keep rebuilding these covered bridges, <laughs> and then they get broken down. Well, it's a job creation. Yeah, thing. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Come yeah. on, historic places. Well, I appreciate the statistical digging that you. that that you've uh, you've presented here, but I always get drawn to the kind of weird stuff here. I mean, you, you talked about the, uh, what do you call it, the Federal Aid Highway Act that started this uh, build-out. But do you guys know that the actual name of the highway system originally, it had an official name, which was the Dwight D. Eisenhower National System of Interstate and Defense Highways? Yes, that's right. What's I mean, the acronym for that? Jesus Every God. once in a while, you can sh- go to one of, the, one of the, um, uh, uh, the, the stops, what do they call them? The, uh, rest the rest stops, yeah. And there'll be some placard that explains all this. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. And, but, and Dwight's Ike's picture is there. This, it's amazing to me because you, you can think like, okay, if if you're acting like a hammer, you see everything as a nail, uh, yeah. you know, that kind of thing. So it's like Eisenhower's this military guy, yeah. and he sees everything in the light of, of national defense. So, you know, the, the whole idea for him for the interstate was we got to make ourselves be able to safely move around all this heavy equipment, yeah. missiles and tanks and, and troops and trucks. And, and so it's like, a, I guess it's an unused uh, defense uh, <laughs> system. You know? Well, this well, is Cold War too, right? So yeah. they're all nervous. Yeah, and, and I think it's, it's just something that you, you brought up, Jason, about standardizing things. That required a standardization that would allow for this heavy, heavy machinery right. to, to travel on it, you know, High overpasses or bridges or whatever for for yeah you could transport missiles standing straight, straight up, up ready in the air exactly yeah exactly. Uh, watch from the from the semi do you know <laughs> when we uh, first hit on the idea of looking at the watershed moments and highways I thought about this quote unquote fact that I knew which is that the highway system was built so that uh, like every five miles there would be an ability to land a jet airplane on it. Nice. And that uh, turns out to be a complete falsehood. <laughs> yeah, I, I think what it actually is, is it wasn't for jet airplanes, it was UFOs. Right, oh, right. Yeah. right. Yeah. No, total total conspiracy theory. But like one of those, we did an episode on susceptibility to conspiracy theories, and I, I was totally taken in by that one. <laughs> like, well, of course, yeah, it's Dwight Eisenhower. Let's land planes all over the place. <laughs> No, but I, there's some other cool uh, things too that I was not aware of. The the whole numbering system. Mm-hmm. Maybe this is shows how unobservant I am. But uh, did you guys know that odd numbers are north south highways and uh, even numbers are east west? Yeah, I, I actually did know that. You know how you could tell because anytime a road like one of these highways curves a little bit in another direction. <laughs> The number changes. Changes number. <laughs> yeah. You haven't noticed that before? <laughs> I have not. I don't know where uh, where you've been driving. Okay, and I, and I got one, one yeah. little quiz item for you guys, okay? The widest highway in the world is in the United States. Uh, oh, really? I'll, I'll give you two, two quizzes. Like one, how many lanes? Two, what city? Okay. It's in a city. Oh, my gosh. LA? A- okay, you've got LA a share. How many lanes? You got to pick a number. 
Uh, it's more than you mean zero. On one side or both? The whole uh, number of lanes in this paved both directions. Block. Yeah, uh, I'm going to say sixteen. Okay, Jason. Okay, I'm going to go for Dallas and fourteen. Ah, oh, you're killing me. See, you are so close to beating a share. Uh, neither of you are right on the on the on Is the it city. Atlanta? It's Houston. Oh, Houston. Oh, of course. So of course. close, Jason. You're in the right state. I know. They do it big in Texas. Uh, they do it. Big it big it's oh, called yeah. the uh, the Katy Highway, and I think it's like interstate, probably plus some access roads on the side. But you needed to up his lane guess. It's ah. 26 lanes. Oh, no, no. <laughs> 26. Yeah. I got to get a look at this. Yeah, I got to look this up yeah. afterwards on Google. Oh, I, I totally invite you to I'm do sure so. there are lots of deer trying to cross that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's like a uh, game of Frogger, right? You're trying to... Uh, uh, I was trying to be reasonable. Shit. Never be reasonable. <laughs> oh, God. oh, God. That's insane. Well, can we can we talk about why we're even talking about this? Like... What what are some of the consequences? Of- nothing, nothing. It's fine. oh, there are no downsides. No, we're we're good. Okay, well, <laughs> look, you guys know I've got the uh, environmental studies background, so can I just jump in real quick with a uh, laundry list of environmental consequences? Okay, depress me fast. Okay, it's gonna be just one, I think. Yeah, right? yeah. you got you got a minute. Okay, here we go. So, you know, you got to first mine all that oil and, and materials for all the, the infrastructure and the fuel that you need to, Mining, uh, to be run around on highways. Yep. Uh, that, of course, tears up the land and has all kinds of issues that go with that. Then you need all the materials and the energy for maintaining the highways. Uh, and, and plus all of the energy that goes into maintaining this huge private fleet of, uh, of vehicles. Sure. Yep. Yep. Right? Good one. Okay. Good let's, one. let's talk emissions here for a second. You know, you get the local pollution, the nitrous oxides, ground level ozone. I mean, uh, you know, the, all my favorite stuff. Smells good. Yeah. Smells good. I mean, I think you picked LA a share because of the, the legendary LA smog, right? Yeah. I mean, that's all from, from driving I, and highways. I miss it so. We yeah. did a lot of this in the car episode, by the way. We, yeah. we talked about this before. So, yeah, we're repeating ourselves. Sure. Go ahead. Go ahead. But long-term emissions, of course, climate change. Yeah. Uh, you know, you're putting tons of CO2 up into the atmosphere. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about water pollution. It's yeah. not something you would necessarily expect, but you get all this runoff coming from even the Even the, the tires are, there's there's like chemicals in the tires that are screwing up fish well yeah you've got you've got the pollutants that are yeah. they're getting in the streams but you also have the quantity of water because when you pave a surface it becomes yeah. impervious and the water just goes flying off into the stream you got all this erosion and it's it's a good thing we don't need more fresh water like you know <laughs> yeah no reason to protect yeah, the no stream. reason to keep no. that stuff right uh and then my favorite uh from the the conservation biology side of things is habitat disruptions i mean you already mentioned a deer trying to cross the, yeah. uh, you know you got you, they can be significant barriers but probably even more important is the way that highways and roads fragment yeah, habitats it's a big deal honestly yeah yeah it's i mean it's it's one of the you know this this kind of fragmentation and habitat loss that's that's the leading cause of species extinction well one of the things that i think about is is the dependency now we have on roads because it wasn't always like that prior to the build out of these this incredible road system ribbons of concrete we had more energy efficient rail systems in the u.s both for long distance and for like this within city kind of trolleyways yeah we 
we even had rail that was con- connecting towns to each other in Sonoma County, where I used to live in, yeah. in Northern California. Used to be a small gauge uh, rail track that connected Santa Rosa to Sebastopol is now a bike path. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was rail connecting all of these little towns. Yeah, you know, like nine nine towns. Marin in County Sonoma too County. was like that. Yeah. yeah, and that's all that that all disappeared. Bye right? bye. I know it's yeah. it's it's awful. Um, Could you uh, were you allowed to take a hand car out on those lines and take a, a hand car between towns? I don't know. They got rid of them before I was <laughs> I've, there. I've always wanted to to try yeah. one of those. Yeah, that'd be seems fun. like such an ancient technology. I see people with bikes. They have a bike that pedals the hand cars now. Real? Uh, yeah, yeah. kind of cool. That sounds awesome. <laughs> um, well, you know, we we've sort of then this infrastructure has locked us into an oil dependency. We got like five percent of the population, or what? What do we consume? Somewhere between twenty and twenty five percent of global oil supplies. Yeah, and you mean in the United States? Yeah. In the United States, yeah. And it's it's we've got this built environment now that's just dependent upon personal automobiles. Yeah, yeah. and I mean, if you think about that dependency, you know, we we sometimes you hear people crowing about the U.S. being energy independent and how much we're producing, but. You know, we are really dependent upon sources of oil from other parts of the world as, as well. Yeah. And we've seen what that's done on a geopolitical oh, yeah. you know, basis, right? I mean, uh, you don't have to look too far in, in, the, in the past to see um, the connection between geopolitics and oil dependence. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. One, I think uh, you can see some, some kind of hidden feedback loops at work, too, because this dependency of being locked into cars and highways and fuel has also led to this separation of our uh, the spaces where we live and where we work and where we shop because because you could get around so easily in your you know just jump in the car and so now you just drive off to get everything you need but it's really caused some problems because a lot of people have to work in the city, but they can't necessarily afford to live there. So now they're whatever. I was going to say 30 minutes drive outside of town. That's probably <laughs> optimistic in a lot of places, especially with traffic. So people are like spending their lives in cars now. I mean, I love it. I, <laughs> I, would, I would do that every day. If I could. There's yeah. nothing more uh, fun and gentle than sitting in a long line of traffic while the guy yeah. behind you is just ramming up your tail and you know, and everybody's shouting at each other. Oh, yeah. Relaxing, yeah. relaxing. It's so relaxing. I love it. <laughs> yeah, I think you, you alluded to this a little bit earlier, Jason. You know, the fact that we, we built this highway system and we've designed it in a certain way to allow for large vehicles to be on. It, right, mm-hmm. paved the way, no pun intended, mm-hmm. for the trucking industry to become really our primary means of transporting goods. Oh, it's our right? lifeline. <laughs> and yeah. and think about this. I mean, you know, we have many more passenger vehicles, and we've talked about this before. How insane it is, right? That all of us, not all of us, there are people sitting in a car by themselves, stuck in traffic to get someplace. Yeah, or like when you want to go buy 20 pounds of groceries, you got to get there in a 3,000 pound vehicle. Right. That's a nice light vehicle. Congratulations. Yeah, Yeah, I know. It's like a Honda Civic. (laughs) (laughs) So we're, you know, we're all doing that and they're very, there are a lot of passenger vehicles out there. But in fact, most of what is being transported on roads are our goods. And, yeah. um, you know, we did this, uh, we did this book called Our Renewable Future uh, a few years ago, and we were sort of looking at how we're, we currently use energy and we're looking at the transport sector. And one of the stats that really blew me away is that we transport 
something like 835 times the amount of weight in goods every year as the total weight of all Americans. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you know how skinny we are. Right? Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> That's a pretty weird stat. I'm trying to wrap my head around that. It's a lot. Of, the point is, <laughs> yeah, that is a lot. There may be a lot of people on roads, but there is a lot There's of stuff. stuff that we are transporting and we are dependent upon that stuff. Well, uh, some of that stuff we're dependent some on. Some of that, but there's a lot of essential things that get transported. Yeah. I mean, food gets sure, transported Sure, foods, medicines, yeah. uh, but I, I was just thinking of like... In my big-ass screen TV, dude, I'm right. dependent on that. Come on. Right. Well, I was thinking about those aisles in the uh, you know the Walmart or the Walgreens or any other wall store that has, uh, you know, like the... The plastic bouncy balls and the rubber dog shit and the hey, fake throw up and you know. you're non essential. Someone else is <laughs> right. essential. Okay, right. Come on, yeah, yeah. But what happens when there are diesel shortages, right? Like, or there's an issue with diesel prices or something like that. Like, we're vulnerable in a way that we may not. Uh, I think people are maybe able to recognize a little bit more right now because of what we're dealing with. But that's a huge vulnerability. Oh we're creating gosh. dependence there. Yeah. You know? it's yeah. Bad. It, you can see, like, you know, halfway around the world, Russia invades Ukraine, oil and gas prices go up, and yeah, we're suddenly affected. Yeah. So the other thing that's, I think, interesting to bring up about the history of what happened here is that you think about the timing of this. 1956, they start building soon. This is all going on during the civil rights era. Mm. And all these... Supreme Court, uh, you know, laws are passed. The Supreme Court holds, upholds things that say you can't, you can't, you know, have segregation, and you you can't keep certain people from living in your area. There were there were literally Housing laws, yeah, that said this is the area of town that white people can live, and this is the area of town that black people can live, and they can't live together. That yeah. was those were laws in many places. Those were those are broken down. Those were destroyed by the civil rights movement and the and the courts. But smart politicians. <laughs> well, let, let, let's let's not call, call them, them smart. <laughs> yeah. uh, how about Wiley, cagey, racist? Yeah, yeah. racist. Uh, jackass politicians. <laughs> Sorry about that. That was a bad bad word choice. Because <laughs> I think Rude. I know. I think cunning. I know where you're going yeah. with this. Evil yeah. doer cleverness. Yeah. Okay. Cunning. Cunning. As soon um, as you said politician, we knew uh, <laughs> something was up. Well, they would basically say, uh, "Let's use these highway funds that." will allow us to bring this giant four-lane concrete, basically, wall barrier. So you, we're talking about, okay, mountain lions having deer have a tough time crossing. Yeah. Well, so do those other people. Oh, right? so, so they're basically like going to use highways as walls and then, yeah. uh, and then have Mexico pay for it. <laughs> <laughs> but So what they first did is they used eminent domain to, de- to mostly go through African-American neighborhoods, mm-hmm. but on the edge of the white neighborhoods so that the African-American homes would be wiped out and the, and the road would then keep the rest of that community away from the white community. And this happened in town after town after town. There's an enormous number of stories. I mean, Birmingham, Alabama, I'll just give you a specific. They had a racial zoning ordinance where 11th Avenue served as this boundary between the College Hills neighborhood, which was white, and the black neighborhoods to the north. And this law was struck down the College Hills residents were so upset, and they were petitioning to the city commissioners, and they said, we'll figure something out. We'll figure something out. And so they basically just put the freeway right, right, in, that, right in that border. And so it precisely mirrors 
what their zoning had been, mm-hmm. although they had to get rid of that zoning law. Yeah. So that uh, happened all over the country. Yeah. yeah. And there were, oh my gosh, just so many, so many homes were destroyed. 475,000 households and more than a million people were displaced by the building of the highways. Yeah. Just by being able to use eminent domain. Yeah. It's actually, have you ever on foot tried to cross an interstate? (laughs) No, you're not supposed to. I know you're not supposed to. I've done it. You have? I've done it. How old were you at the time? Well, I've done it as an adult and a child, actually. Really? Yeah. Scary. And, uh, and I remember as a child, it, it had one of those dividers in yeah, the middle that we over. had to get over, too. But it's formidable. I yeah. mean, it, they, they are wide. And it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tough... I mean, it's, it's a true barrier is all I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The highway system, the road system, all the ring roads and the interstates going through major cities. I mean... All this stuff also decimated a lot of farmland. You, you yeah. talked to Jason about people being dispossessed from their homes yeah. and it being used as a tool of segregation, right? But it also decimated farmland, decimated rural communities, the communities that had been maybe on on previous road systems, but then a highway goes through. Right, like these little state highways that go through the downtown Main Street. I mean, isn't that in that, that movie Cars 2? Isn't that like about right, this town? A, yeah. Cars 2, whatever. One of those, right, right, right. you know, it was about this town that got left behind, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and that's really hurt a lot of communities. It's also done something, I think, that may be more subtle. But just like you're talking about uniformity with the highways, you know, uh, around the highways became sort of this uniformity of fast food restaurants and uh, gas stations and... And you create the system where there's like this cookie cutter, u- ubiquitous kind of really disgustingly yeah. ugly, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, hideous. And, and the yeah. uglification of America, you know. It's almost like, uh, it's sad to say, but if you picture in your mind a Dunkin' Donuts next to an Exxon station, it kind of says Americana in some uh, ways. Yeah, yeah <laughs> I mean, the, the critic James Howard Kunstler, where they wrote the book Geography of Nowhere, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's just awful stuff. And another thing, too, I guess I would want to mention is that, and you talked about this a little bit, Rob, is just that, you know, initially it's sort of, there was like kind of like a white flight dynamic, you know, that happened of people leaving cities and, and, and heading to suburbia, which obviously the highway system supported, right? Yeah. You have a dynamic now where sort of, I don't know if it's a f- complete and full reversal of that, but there are many people, as as we talked about, who can't afford to live now close to cities where maybe the work is and they are forced to live in communities further and further and further away and so this dependence you know on the highway system and on on the fuels that 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 fuel it really hits hardest on on people who have the least disposable income right so you see this dependence on these systems and on on the price of oil and gas you know really really hitting those hardest who can afford it the least right yeah well, you know, we've just run through an enormous number of, of consequences uh, and, and the kind of things that the build out of the highway system, how it's led us into uh, the crazy town that we all live in today. But we're, we're sort of like uh, coming to the party a little late, I'm afraid, because there was this critic named Lewis Mumford. You guys know him? I'm not talking about the amazing Mumford, the magician it's, on uh, Sesame Street. Was he Street. in Mumford and Sons? <laughs> not talking about <laughs> no, him either. Okay. Uh, the What would you call that? Like the Simon and Garfunkel of new British uh, folk scene or something? <laughs> I, I don't know. Anyway, 
Uh, Lewis Mumford was this social critic who, soon after the, the Federal Highways Act was passed, uh, he's got this quote I'm going to read to you guys. He says, The most charitable thing to assume about this action is that they hadn't the faintest notion of what they were doing. <laughs> That's the most charitable thing. <laughs> Within the next 15 years, they will doubtless find out. By that time, it will be too late to correct all the damage to our cities and our countryside, not least to the efficient organization of industry and transportation that this ill-conceived and preposterously unbalanced program will have wrought. Yeah. I mean, think about it as they thought they were building efficiency, but they weren't. They were destroying efficiency. Yeah. I mean, he saw it coming, right? Unbelievable. And I, I think he's getting to... Kind of a, a big point about unintended consequences, which maybe a lot of the things that have led us into crazy town that we've been discussing in this season on watershed moments have these unintended consequences. Yeah. But it, in the early stages of this federal highway program and this build out of roads in America, probably for most people felt like this great win-win, where you've got the politicians saying, okay, money for my district, and you got local people saying, oh, build-out and modernization. Well, think, I mean, think about the vision. Let's connect every community that's 50,000 yeah. people or more. That, that, that sounds wonderful. Right? Yeah, I know. Yeah. That's, that's like Facebook. Let's just connect people. Yeah, what could but, go wrong? <laughs> but I mean, almost nobody could see these systemic problems coming up. And I, I really... Uh, think we need to emphasize one of these, which is the kind of the most important and the scariest unintended consequence. And that, and you've, you've been kind of bringing it up a little bit here and there, both of you guys. It's the extent to which we are locked into uh, essentially an unworkable infrastructure here in the United States. I just love that, you know, we went to Venezuela uh, asking them to send us more oil recently and Saudi Arabia begging them to turn on the taps, but they're not so happy with us because we've been kind of getting on their case for killing a journalist. <laughs> and uh, so it's just like, it's just absurd, isn't it? Where price of, of oil and gas goes up and we freak out and just start asking the asking the folks that we've presumably been upset well, about. I mean, the, the official response is do anything you can to bring the, the prices back down. I mean, you mentioned begging our uh, so-called allies to uh, open the taps, but we've also seen states putting a hiatus on the gasoline tax. We've uh, seen the Biden administration talk about opening up the Strategic Petroleum Reserve just so you can flood some supply into the market. Yep. You've got uh, people rallying around the ideas of, of getting fracking and tar sands development going again, turning... Uh, Alberta, Canada, back into a petro state. I mean, I mean they they already are. It's not like that shut down. It's just that <laughs> the, people assume we can just always do more. We can always just like drill more, always frack more, and and they just have no no idea what it takes. It's so, not like there's a. It's like a water tap you can turn on. That's like the the proof of how locked in we are. Like here's a moment yeah. where you could make a pivot to renewable energy or or try something different. Yeah, but. No, we're just going to keep the prices low. I, I share, I feel like there's steam coming off of your head. Like this, <laughs> I feel like you have some anger around this issue. I've, I have anger about it. I am also just, I have a lot of consternation because I, I am, I'm pissed. And if you've seen, you could go back, people do this all the time. You know, they do these retrospectives on presidents, 
going back to Nixon, talking about getting off of our dependence on of fossil oh, fuels, yeah, right? Totally, yeah. yeah. Every single fucking president, Democrat, Republican, doesn't matter. They'll all talk about the need to do that. They won't um, recognize. Trump did not talk about the need to do that. That's true. Okay. Well, let's give him credit. Clean, beautiful coal. <laughs> that is true. I guess the one thing you could say is at least he's not a hypocrite. No, he's, he, was, he was straight about it. But you've, you've got people for decades and decades and decades and decades recognize that this is a vulnerability of ours, right? And we're locked in. And, and frankly, there isn't a simple solution, right? We're in a situation right now because of the investments we made, not least of which is this highway system, right? And all the changes that that ended up creating in terms of our built environment, where people live, how we provision ourselves with food and other goods yeah. that we need. We built this fucking system that that's cost us trillions and trillions of dollars. Who knows how many hydrocarbons burned in other resources, displacing people, displacing nature, all this shit, right? And we are stuck in a place now where the things that we would need to do to transition ourselves away from that is a fundamental, systemic, structural, infrastructural transformation, right? And to do something like that at this day and age, which we know we need to do for a number of reasons, climate being not the least of them, but so is the fact that we're dependent upon fossil fuels. Yeah. And anything that happens in the in the market, a war that happens that involves a petrostate, or the fa- the simple fact that you know we're scraping the bottom of the barrel, yeah. the cheap and easy Depletion. stuff. Depletion. Right? It's just like so Anything that we do that's really substantive that's going to get to the heart of that would require a transformation of all of these things, right? This is not about suddenly driving a fucking EV car on the highway. Where do you think the bitumen comes from to for the to, you know to build to, the highway to pill, to <laughs> hey, pave the hey, roads? You we know? can make roads out of solar panels. Okay, <laughs> we've talked about that. The, the all the stuff that goes into these cars, the plastic and the steel and everything. I mean, we've we've looked and done this analysis. It's all dependent upon these resources. But we're now in a situation where if we're going to say, okay, we got to get off this shit, yeah. right? We don't have a ton of time to do it because of, of climate. We don't have a ton, ton of time to do it because of depletion. And if, if we did it substantively, it would require sacrifice, dramatic change, a real impact on people. And guess what? That ain't going to fly. Well, that's, right? the, that's the kicker is that I agree with you. We need to be on a massive program of shared sacrifice and devotion to that transformation, but you can see how psychologically invested the public is in sort of the status quo and the and the burning of, of but gasoline. But they're not just psychologically invested. They are materially invested. You can just say to people, especially people who are living at the margins, yeah. right? More and more Americans are living at the margins. To say to them, guess what? Tighten your belt. We're going to, we're going to, basically let prices go up or whatever we're going to do, we're going to make these kinds of sacrifices well, going to hit those people really hard. Yeah. Well, I mean, think about it. The, um, what is it? The International Energy Agency after uh, prices started going up when the, when Russia invaded Ukraine, the, the, they came up with a 10 point plan, which is sort of loaded with you know, what you think of as fairly straightforward Okay, yeah, that's a good way to use less gas. So they have things like reduce highway speed limits, work from home, 
go car free on Sundays. And, and you know, that, that's three of the 10, but there's more like that. And it, I can think of some people I know who would be like, uh, you know, they're telling me to go car free on Sundays. I, I'm going to drive twice as far. Look, just we to couldn't spite even them. get yeah. consensus on wearing masks or getting vaccinated, right? Like to think that we're going to get consensus on, on this day, you can't drive your car or whatever it is. Like, and that's even if people can afford to do some of this stuff. You yeah. know, the, the frustration, and, and this is why when you hear proposals, Biden administration putting out proposals to address climate change, you know, and it comes to the transportation system, right? It's all about electric vehicle charging stations. And because we can't imagine and we can't actually make an investment in a system that's completely different. Right? We need a system that does not require this high amount of fossil fuel inputs at every stage of production, extraction, reformation, distribution, storage, processing, consumption, disposal. How, how many nouns can you put in a row here? This every single freaking step of almost everything we touch, all 835 pounds of, of stuff per person, or 835 times. Yeah. Yeah. 835 times. So I'm, yeah. I, that, that's I'm, for a one pound person. That's why I weigh myself and then multiply. Eight. That's how much stuff is being, all of it is touched by fossil fuels. So if you say the price of fossil fuels go up, just multiply that, that price of that one input across all the steps in the economy, which are completely dependent upon it. So we need to do something different. Something maybe the opposite. Uh, let's see if we can fuel things on righteous anger and frustration. <laughs> hey, in our ongoing shameless attempt to get more reviews out on iTunes, uh, this is a part where we share a, a particularly good review. You guys want to hear it? Please. Sure. Okay. This is from Chaka Harta from uh, about a year ago. That's a great name. Chaka Harta says, Smart topical discussion with information about staying sane in our current era. Science, politics, psychology, business, government, and a healthy amount of irreverent humor throughout. Most importantly, the hosts seem to really know their stuff from working in the trenches on these issues for years. Well, that's really sweet, though. Thank you. I'm glad. I'm glad somebody likes our podcast. Yes, thank you, Chaka Harta, for that wonderful review. And please, if you like this show, get anything out of it, maybe a laugh here and there. Go over to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and drop us uh, a review. Helps other people find it. Yep. Thanks. Every decision I've ever made in my entire life has been wrong. <laughs> My life is the complete opposite of everything I want it to be. If every instinct you have is wrong, then the opposite would have to be right. <laughs> okay, so when we're talking about doing the opposite of the National Highway Act, I immediately think of what we would do at sort of federal policy at the highest levels, right? What, what would we do there? And here are a couple of some bold ideas. People are begging the, the fossil fuel companies to drill more now, right? And they don't want to do it in the United States after having spent, you know, a decade fracking away with all the consequences of that. And yeah, not being profitable. Really. Not, and losing money. And now, now they're making money because oil prices have gone up and you can't convince them to drill. So 
fuck those guys. Let's nationalize <laughs> the industry. I mean, I know that sounds crazy, but we bailed out the auto industry 12 years ago or whatever it was, you know, 13 years ago. And stop it. You know, let's let, let's take control. It can't. This is not an issue that could be solved by the whim of the market. I know, and, and I know the biggest na- oil companies in the world are nationalized already. So, what what is the advantage of of nationalizing? Because we could direct. You know, we could actually say these are the goals. I mean, right now the goals for these companies is to make money. Is to make money, right? Right. So, our goals could be let's use. The, the energy that we have available to us, if we have to use fossil fuels, which we acknowledge we do, mm-hmm. we cannot go cold turkey overnight. Let's use them to support a transition that's a just transition, right. a sustainable transition to, so, to something else. So you're making, a substantive yeah, you're making corporate decisions instead of based upon how do we make as much profit, you're saying – this is a key input to the industrial civilization, <laughs> and we need to wean ourselves off it steadily, progressively, as quickly as we can. Invest these resources where they need to go. Yeah, and, for a common good. And and along those lines, you know, again, trying to think, what would we do that was the opposite? We might have to think about rationing energy consumption. Right, because you if, you're, if, you're, if you're ratcheting down fossil fuel production— then you have to ratchet down demand or prices are going to spike and then right. the poorest won't have any, any access to anything. Well, and plus climate is pushing this yeah. too. We, we, should be, we should have had a ration in place quite a long time ago. And we've, I don't know if we've talked about tradable energy quotas on this podcast before, but tradable energy quotas is something that, that we at PCI have written about and spoken about. You know, we could put that in the show notes for folks. So that's one way of trying to do it that is more equitable but a way of basically saying, look, we have to ration and, and, and limit, but being well, very two, mindful. Yeah, season two, we had a whole episode on rationing, yeah. which was our least popular episode of all time. <laughs> yeah. Nobody wants Shocker. to hear it, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, hell, Jeff Bezos is going out into space and harvesting the moon because right. he can't stand without right. a rationing. Yeah. Well, one of the things that you got to think about in doing the opposite is what the highway system undid, which as you topped the program off today, Jason, talked about how the rail system got decimated. And so one of the things we also need to do at the probably uh, higher levels of government, federal, state, is to revive these other transportation networks, rail, canals, and and and, and even, uh, I know it's... Rickshaws. Well, I was going to yeah, say... it's they're great. I love rickshaws. It's not a, uh, you know, it's, you can't haul nearly so much cargo, but I, I love the bike infrastructure too. Mm-hmm. And something I've, I've actually noticed a lot around Portland lately, the, the city where I live, is that it's like we hold the road sacred. Keep the road open and free-flowing, but... But the bike paths are getting taken over and, and uh, they're littered and they're sort mm-hmm. of like falling into disrepair. And the, the train station is a mess. So like, no, these should be the, the uh, parts of the infrastructure that we emphasize. And yeah. let's start de-emphasizing the roads and the cars. And, and in fact, you, you, you mentioned it a couple of seconds ago, share, but like bailing out car companies. Can, can we next time they're facing bankruptcy, can we just let them uh, slide off into the sunset? And, yeah. and call it quits. So what you're calling for is let's de-beautify the the, the roads, right? Let's uh, <laughs> let's throw our waste in the road, none the, yeah. none Th- the bike Yeah, think lane. about if we had a like uh, accidentally there was a 40 foot barrier that just appeared in the middle of the highway. <laughs> I mean, uh, would that be so bad? Uh, <laughs> uh, 
Yeah. Just don't do it all foggy day, okay? Right, right. Well, I, I come to this idea that we have 835 times our body weight in stuff moving around. And a lot of that is because we've hyper-specialized production of something in one location of the world. And we've had episodes on this on how much everything gets on shipping containers and transported yeah. around the world. And if you want to reduce the transportation intensity and remove the need for all this infrastructure, then you've got to regionalize your production system and make it geared towards local consumption. And an example around here, like we used to have a a walnut industry in the Willamette Valley. We grew commercial walnuts. Mm -hmm. But once I-5 corridor gets put in, suddenly it's it's a little bit cheaper to grow walnuts in California. And so they outcompete the walnuts from Oregon and our walnut industry disappears. But if, if you kind of had sort of say trade barriers in the sense of, no, it's expensive to get anything between here and California because there's that 40-foot barrier along I-5. <laughs> that, that does make it expensive. <laughs> uh, then, then suddenly it's like you're really focusing on diversifying each region for the array of, of goods and services that are needed in that region. And so it, it's not like you don't need transportation, but the scale of, of transportation required then gets downgraded quite a bit. And it's not trying to go as far. It's not trying to go through centralized systems for ultra high tech packaging and processing. But you know, then if you look at how much energy is used, not just to produce and distribute, but also to get the the final kind of mile where it's getting into the home of people, the household level. Mm-hmm. People are driving forever just to go to the big box stores. Those have to disappear too. And have you ever been in a one of these like old European cities where there's a grocery store on every corner? Yeah. You understand that it's it's the ability to walk outside, go down the street a little ways, and buy what you need. And that is that's such an incredible thing to have. So ideally, cool- with that that goes hand in hand with with ideally relocalizing yes. where that stuff came from in the first place. Right, right. you're cutting out at, at all these different ends then and. And so uh, there's a book, actually, uh, Retro Suburbia, David Holgram. It's a very interesting look at how you would take our current built environment and retrofit it. Mm-hmm. And of course, most of this is illegal to do. Like you, you, we've, we've, we can't have retail outlets at, at the corner of, of a suburban house right well, now. But, well, and it, the problem is we imagine it like a Walmart's going to drop on the corner as no. opposed to what you're talking about, some you know, mom and pop kind of shop. Yeah. Yeah, somebody somebody takes the initiative and has a corner grocery and, and actually in, are, on their house. Our organizations like the Sustainable Economies Law Center that that work at some of these laws, you know, ordinances and things that are on the books that that disincentivize right. people basically either having their own home production of food or whatever that they could sell or, or other ways of provisioning. Yeah, you know, break locally. down all the legal barriers to local livelihoods, provisioning, distribution, sales, et cetera, and mix it all up again like it used to be in the old days. Yeah. And I think it's really key what you said, which is that the whole idea of retro suburbia, we have to recognize that there's a lot of of built infrastructure that's going to remain in a sense what it is, right? And so we have to be very creative and making the most of what, what we do have. And I, I want to take this down to a uh, almost like a very individualized level or maybe apply for the household. But one of the things that I think you can really do is sort of try to immunize yourself from being so reliant on this infrastructure and this fossil fuel. And I, I know we've talked about 
you probably have to have a certain amount of privilege or cushion to be able to do that because, you know, some people are, are locked into these really tough situations. So, you know, maybe this isn't applicable all over the place, but this has been on my mind a lot because of something that, that, that happened to me recently with the car that I use in order to uh, be able to get down and hang out with you guys here in Corvallis and record this podcast. So I, I have this hybrid car, right? It gets about 50 miles of uh, distance on the electric engine. And when the batteries run out of juice, it switches over to the gas engine. So, you know, I'm one of these uh, like uh, holier than thou hybrid drivers, right? <laughs> and this valve on the car broke. And so what that caused was an overheating anytime the gas engine was in use. So basically it became unsafe to drive the car in gas mode. However, the show must go on. So yeah, I had I still you showed up. Yeah, I had to get down here. You hitchhiked. Right. No, what I did You walked on the highway. I, I <laughs> wish. I, I, I did take the train one time, which was fun. Uh, but what I took to doing was I would drive the car in electric mode, stop halfway and recharge it, and then drive the other half. Now this car does not have a fast charge. Right. So basically yeah. what this meant was my trip went from being around an hour and a half in time length to being five and a half hours. And it also meant that I drove on much slower roads because I could get farther per electric right. charge. So I wasn't yeah. on the interstate. And I noticed some real changes. Like one, I enjoyed the slowing of it because I, I don't know, it's just more scenery. Oregon's beautiful. I was along the Willamette River. You were listening River. to Life is a Highway. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. Um, but also, I, I was just, I guess I was meditating on it a lot. The slowing down was okay. The only reason it sucks is because everybody else is able to go faster. Right. And I'm sort of the only one right. who's, yeah. who's taking this extra time. Relative I think, speed. I yeah. think if we all kind of had it a little bit slower and had a little bit more connection with the landscapes that we're traversing, uh, you, you would you would have an improved quality of life. And, and the time that I came down here by train and bike, that was even more fun. And it actually took me less time than the damn car. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I'm going to look, I, I know you were trying to bring it down to the personal level. I'm going to bring it even more personal level, which is I think if we see the normally this the, this issue that we're facing, there, there's only one recourse: oh. just stop moving. Well, that's the ultimate slowing down. You mean like uh, like, like you're not talking about move your house? You're talking about like just stay yeah, don't in one move. place. Just don't move. That's yeah. brilliant. Like what? a tree. Like be like a tree. Be like a tree. If what? trees can do it, what so can I, we. What if I'm hungry? <laughs> uh, sit and wait, predator. <laughs> deal, deal with it. Be like a snake. Thanks for listening. We just gave you a whole bunch of do the opposite ideas so you can take action in your life and community. If that's too much at this time in your life, do something real simple. Give us a five-star rating on Spotify or any other podcast app and hit the share button to let your friends know about Crazy Town. Today's sponsor is K. H-W-Y, the all-highway station, nothing but songs about the open road, great car sex, being stuck in traffic, <laughs> driving drunk, crashing, tow trucks, speedways, jacked up trucks, low riders, and for you, they might be giants, eco-freak types, even electric cars. 
K-H-W-Y. Rockin' the American Road since 1956. Oh, baby, this town rips the bones from your back. It's a death trap. It's a suicide rap. We gotta get out while we're young. Cause tramps like us, baby, we were born to run. Do-do-do-do. <laughs> I think that sucked. Yeah, baby. Crazy town, da 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 da, crazy town.